when you get to the end of a, of a year like this, I think one of the things that starts happening uh, is you start thinking about what could be different. And I think one of the reasons why we like the idea of a new year is we like to have the, the idea of a fresh start. Uh, next year can be better than last year. We always have that hope. I don't think anybody goes into January going, I sure hope next year is worse than last year. Uh, there's always this sense of anticipation that this time we're going to have a, a better year. Things will, will be better. I need that restart. And one of the things that I think is, is uh, important in that process is thinking about how we can start again with God and how we can start again with a, a renewed faith uh, in him. And, and one of the reasons I think we should be, be thinking about that is you know, whereas we go through such difficulties in life. We have talked over some of our various lessons about going through suffering and hardship and pain and loss and how can we begin again and start with a new faith in God going forward into a new year that, that we are approaching? And so what I want to do for our series that's going to take us into the new year is spend our time in a book that would be a, probably a really surprising book to spend our time in to talk about renewing our faith and, and starting fresh with God in that new way. And that's from the book of Malachi. And you go, okay, why Malachi? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute. But if you have your Bibles, you go over to the book of Malachi. And if you're not exactly sure where that is, if you'll find Matthew and go back one, you're there. Malachi, one of the last written uh, records for us, of, it was happening of the, the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the final prophets of God during that era. And one of the things that is really unique about Malachi's prophecy is you have a discussion between God and the prophet, and the discussion is representing the questions that the people of Israel have. Now, here's why the questions are really interesting. God will make a statement and the people will automatically question it every single time in the book. God will say, I am this or I do this. And then the people are going to go, how? We don't believe you. It's basically what they're going to do all throughout this. And then God is going to give an answer. He's going to explain to the people, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. And in doing that, I think these will be some important foundations in building our faith and starting over with God and going forward with God. I would also say that this is going to be a useful series to you if you have been questioning God, because the whole book is Israel questioning God. Everything they say that's recorded for us is them questioning God. And we're going to look at, all right, well, if you have these kinds of questions, here's the answer that God gives to that. And if you've been struggling with your faith, that's where Israel's at. They are struggling with their faith in God right now. They're challenging God and questioning him. And in these answers that God is going to give to those questions and to those challenges of his character and nature, I think are going to be very helpful to you if that's where you are in your walk with God. I want you to notice how God starts the prophecy. Notice he just simply says, here's his statement in verse 2 of Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you. And that's all he says. There's his, his sentence. Here's God's initial declaration. 
I have loved you. Now, it's important that we get a sense a little bit of the Hebrew here because our English doesn't have a good way to communicate what's being said here in terms of tenses. Because if I were to say to you, I have loved you, you would probably say, well, why did it stop? We usually use a phrase like that, and it sounds like it's terminated. But the Hebrew word here is in this present and perfect tense, which means I've loved you in the past, I'm loving you now, and I'm still loving you going forward. We don't have tenses like that in English without doing what I just did. So that's the hard part of this is I have loved you is not saying only in the past and it stopped. I have loved you and I still am loving you. And I want you to just get a sense that that is where God wants to start with people. It is God is always starting by saying, do you understand how much I care for you? Do you understand how much I love you? Do you understand what you mean to me? And what a start to a prophecy here hidden in the pages of what we call the minor prophets is God making a proclamation that I am abounding in steadfast love. I have loved you and I have always loved you. And I want you to notice How the people respond in verse 2. They say, how have you loved us? Told you this is a book of questions. God will say something and the people will go, we don't believe you. And that's their answer right here. God says, I have always loved you. And the people respond back by saying, well, how have you loved us? And before we get critical about these people, I would perhaps challenge us a moment and say sometimes we feel the same way with God. We read in the scriptures, God says he loves us and we go, yeah, but I'm not really seeing it. And that's what they mean when they ask this question. This isn't a complete disbelief in God that God has ever loved his people. Well, we don't believe that you've ever loved us. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is in their present circumstances and in the difficulties that they are facing, that as we go through this series, it will be revealed to us what they're experiencing. They're saying, we're looking around and we don't see your love. You say you've always loved us, but look at us. Look at our circumstances. Look at what we're going through. Look at what we're experiencing. How have you loved us? Look at this. That's what they are ultimately responding back to God is saying, we just don't see it. And I hope you think about that. Okay, if we start talking in terms like that, it is easy to run into those times of life where we can be skeptical of God's love. If you loved us, then why are things going this way? Why are circumstances the way that they are? What is happening in my life? And that is what they are ultimately coming to God with. If you love us, then why is life going this way? And what God is going to do in this small first paragraph is he's going to give two answers. Now, as it was read for us this morning, you might not have heard these obvious answers coming right out because What God does is give two fairly complex answers. And we're going to break those complex answers down, but they are very important answers because they give us a faith to believe in God's love for us in spite of our circumstances. I want you to listen to the first proof that God gives. 
There in verse 2, after they ask, how have you loved us? Notice that God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That's the answer. And you go, okay. <laughs> what did that just mean? <laughs> Why is that an answer? Why would that be a response of the people saying, how have you loved us? And, there, and God's response is simply, I chose Jacob over Esau. Now, I want you to be fascinated by this just on a surface level. And I want you to notice that God does not say, well, I fed you today. Don't you know that I love you? <laughs> and he doesn't say, now look back at last week. Look, at you're still breathing, right? You're still breathing. You know I love you. Okay, I want you to notice that what God does... In answering this question is he gets very historical. He says, well, Esau I've hated, but Jacob I've loved. That's his answer. Now that goes back to like about a thousand years earlier. Here is God pointing way back into Israel's history. In fact, when this is pointing to, as I have on the screen, would be all the way back in Genesis chapter 25. Where you have with Isaac and, 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 and uh, with, with, with Rachel there, with Rebecca there, Isaac and, Re- and Rebecca. Rebecca here has a, a, a concern. She has a struggle going on in, in the womb. And so with that, there is this question, what is going on? And God says, well, that's no problem. You've got two nations in there. You know, they're all struggling with one another. But he he says something very curious when he says that the older is going to serve the younger. And that's not how things operated in that day and time. If you were the firstborn, you were the preeminent. You got the blessing. You got the birthright. You got the privilege. You were the head of family. That was everything. And God is saying, no, here's what's going to happen. It's actually going to be different. And in talking about Esau, I've hated and Jacob, I have loved. This was always a representation of their descendants. That's what God is focusing on. And you can even see that in the reading because it's going to talk about the nation and the heritage uh, and the inheritance and the country being torn down. When God talks about this relationship between Jacob and Esau, he never merely means here's this one guy, Jacob, and I really like him. And here's Esau. and I don't like him. That's not ever what, what is in view. Jacob always represents the descendants that would come from him. Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. And all that would flow from him are Israelites and the tribes of Israel. Esau is also going to have a nation come from him called Edom and all that would flow from him. In fact, that's why you'll notice it talks about Edom in verse four. It's not out of the blue. We're talking about the descendants. So I want you to notice what God is doing here. God's answer by saying, Jacob, I've loved and Esau, I have hated He's saying, here's what I, how you can know my love for you. I chose you. Now, catch how he chose them, though. He doesn't say, well, I chose you yesterday and I chose you last week or something like that. He's going all the way back before the children were born. He's going all the way back to Genesis 25 and saying, before Esau and before Jacob even were born, God was making this choice. 
which gives two very important implications. One, God had chosen Jacob when he didn't deserve to be chosen because he was number two. Who deserved to be chosen? Esau. Esau was supposed to be chosen. He was supposed to be the number one. He was supposed to be the one through whom the blessings of God would come. And God goes, no, no, that's not how it's going to work. I chose Jacob instead, which then underscores the other point, which is he chose them when they didn't do anything. They hadn't even been born yet. Which is the point that Paul makes. In Romans 9 and verse 11, when he quotes this passage, he says, For though her sons had not yet been born, so notice the first one, not yet born, or done anything good or bad. Okay? You didn't even exist and you didn't even do anything. So that God's purpose according to election might stand. Not from works, from, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written. And he quotes from here. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, I would love if you wanted to stay here for another hour and a half, I could do all of Romans right there. Can't do that, right? But it's not the point of the lesson. There's an awful lot to unearth. In Romans chapter 9 about the argument that God is making in regards to salvation at this point. But what I want us to spend our time focusing on is what God is trying to tell them. They're asking God or telling God, how are we supposed to see your love? How are we supposed to know you say you love us? How are we supposed to know in spite of our circumstances? And God's answer is I chose you before you were born and before you did anything good or bad. He goes all the way back to the beginning of their history. He's always pointing this out to Israel. You weren't special. You weren't mighty. You weren't numerous. You didn't do anything. You didn't even exist yet when I said these words that I was going to use you, Jacob, and through you would be all of these blessings. So here's the point that I'm getting at. What God is doing here in this first step is saying, my choosing of you, my election of Jacob, of Israel, was to forever be a monument to them of God's love. This was always supposed to be something that they could go back to and know. God says, I have always loved you. Well, they say, how have you loved, how have you loved us? And God's answer is, because I chose you in the very beginning, I'm taking you back to the start. And I'm showing you that before you have done anything, I chose you to be my people. Now, I want to illustrate that, and then I'll show you how this is a New Testament illustration. But I think this illustration works because of how often God uses in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament the idea of adoption. And an adoption is a beautiful picture that God uses. And in that picture, you have God saying, I've chosen you. So now put that in our terms. Here's, I want, we're going to like set up what happened in Malachi. Here is the adopted child. And the adopted child says to the parent, how have you loved us? And the adopting parent can say, I chose you. Before you did anything, I picked you. I chose you. You can forever know 
that I love you because I chose you. You belong to me. That's the answer that God is giving to Israel. I selected you. I chose you. I adopted you. You belong to me. And friends, that is what the Apostle Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 1 when he starts describing all of the spiritual blessings that we enjoy in Christ. He says, for he chose us in him. Notice, before the foundation of the world. Here is this choosing. God says, I've chosen for the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. And then notice again all these words. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished upon us in the beloved one. And I want you to see what God's answer is and how it's the exact same answer. You can know that God loves you because before the foundation of the world, before you were born, before you did anything good, Or anything evil. Now hear me. God predetermined that he would have a people that would belong to him. He decided before anything even existed, I want to have a people who belong to me. That is in and of itself is stunning, by the way. Because God has no need for anything, hence the definition of God. He could be self-sufficient and fine. In the spiritual realms and the heavenly places just existing. But before the foundation of the world, Paul says, you know what he did? He decided that he was going to have a people. And that's when the whole creation process begins. He determines that he is going to do that. How can you know that you are loved by God? Because you belong to him. And he decided far long ago that he wanted to have a people who belong to himself. Just as an adopted child can always know the love of the parent because of the choosing. So we can always know the love of God because he chose us in the same fashion. The picture is this, that he is answering. God's faithful love doesn't change because of our life circumstances. talked a little bit about this in the Bible class this morning. But sometimes what happens is when we go through hardships, we then go, well, I just don't know that God loves us anymore. And one of God's answers is my love for you goes beyond your present life circumstances. I've always loved you. And the reason you can know that is you can point to this monumental moment in history in which God shows that he loved his people. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to hear this picture that's been given to us. And I love Ephesians 1 in that way. You've been adopted by God and God decided beforehand that he wanted to have a people. And thus he'd done with Israel. He decided he would have a people. Those people belong to him. You've seen my love. He continues that very picture, deciding beforehand that he would have a people and we belong to him and we enjoy those same blessings and that same picture of adoption no matter what has happened to us. Notice similarly the second picture in verse 3 that carries through verse 5. I won't have time to read all through that, but I want you to notice the second proof of God's love that he uses here is rooted in the future. You will notice again that God does not say, look at what happened yesterday and 
that's how you can know that I love you. He starts with going way back in the past. Here is this monument of, of my love for you that I chose you from the very beginning. You notice it again as he points to the future. When he says there in verse 4, if Edom says we are shattered and we will rebuild, here's what the Lord says. They might build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Here's this, this image of those who don't belong to God are going to be judged. And I love the picture of verse 4. There are always going to be people who are trying to resist and overthrow God and his plan. And there are always going to be people who are going to try to resist this key truth. That there are some who belong to him and there are some who do not. And God is not going to allow the wicked to be victorious. Though they may build, God says, I will tear it back down. What God does in trying to show love to Israel in the same way that he shows it to us is not only did I choose you in the past, but he looks forward and says, there's going to be a vindication. There's going to be a day and you're going to see all that I have done for you. And that the wicked will be judged and you will be ultimately belonging to me. So here's what I want to do for this morning then are three key steps. And what we'll do with each of our lessons is take a few pieces of what Malachi is doing to try to show. Here's how we can start with a new faith toward God. Number one, God's message to Israel and God's message to us is God has loved us and we are able to see it. For us as the people of God, as Christians, what we are able to do is we are able to find our adoption back at the cross. In any life circumstance, in any difficulty, in any hardship, in any pain, no matter what we are going through, if we ever have the moment where we are saying to God, how have you loved us? I don't see it. God's answer comes back resoundingly, you can see it, and I want you not to necessarily look at the right here and right now, but I want you to go back and look at the cross and see my love for you, which is what the Apostle Paul argues on so many occasions, but one of my favorites is in Romans chapter 5, God proves his love for us. I want you to think about all the different ways God could have made the statement. Here's how I'm going to prove that I love you. You asked me, how have you loved us? Let me prove it to you. There could have been a lot of answers to the rest of the sentence. And his answer is always comes back to this one. I gave my son back a long time ago to prove that you belong to me. It was as if that was the signing of the adoption papers right there. What a beautiful picture that's given to us is that he is proving his love for us. And sometimes what happens to us is we are, we, I know that he loves me, but what about all my sins? All the things that I've done wrong. All right, so read that again. When did God prove his love for you? When you were really righteous and you were doing a really great job and you were earning it because you were amazing in all of your righteous holy acts. That's not what it says. 
Here's God saying, here's how I've proven my love for you. While you were still sinners, while you were enemies, while you were lost, while you were helpless, not while you were doing good, while you were doing evil, I sent my son to die for you. That's how you can know God's love. That is the thing that you can always put your finger back on, no matter what is going on in life. Just as God was telling Israel, I chose you in the very beginning. I determined that you were going to be my people because I said it would be Israel and it wouldn't be Esau. God says, here's how I determined I was going to have a people. I was going to send my son and he was going to die on a cross and all who belong to him know the love of God. And it's not by looking at what's happening right now today, but going back to the cross and saying, that's the moment. That's the moment he showed it. That's the moment when it was on its brightest display. God proves his love. For his people at the cross. And God would be able to say, I don't have to do anything more. He could do that. I was thinking about that in the adoption process that if I have adopted children, they say, How have you loved us? Say, Because you're here. That's all I have to say to you. You're here. Look. Hey, and notice God's trying to say that to us. You're my people. You belong to me. In fact, that's, I think, the next picture to really see is what God is doing in this is trying to get his people to understand the depths of love that he has for them. That's probably one of the hardest things that God has to do in all of human history. The hardest thing that God has to do in all of human history is try to get us to understand the depths of his love for us. The Apostle Paul said it this way that I always enjoy, smile, and crack up at because it stands in opposition to itself. Here is the Apostle Paul saying, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength To comprehend. Here's what I want you to comprehend. With all the saints. All of us together need to comprehend this thing. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? Stop there. God says. You need to know how big this box is of God's love for you. I want you to comprehend it. You need to know its length and height and width. You just need to know all of it. But then notice what he says. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says, when you start trying to find the boundaries of the box, you'll realize there's no boundaries to the box. All of you parents understand this. Is there any way your children can ever understand how much you love them? No. And you can tell them to try to find the boundaries of the box. Because it'll be a real fun pursuit. Because you won't ever get there. And God's trying to say that to us. 
You don't understand the boundaries and the depths of my love for you. And I want you to notice what Paul says. Here's the reason why it is so important. Don't drop off the last part of the sentence. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. You want to know how transformation happens? You want to know how you move from an unholy life to a holy life? How we can move from being unrighteous to righteous? You have to start grasping the love of Christ. That's what Paul just said. And the reason in Malachi 1, the people are in sin and disobedient and don't care about God. Because they're saying, how have you loved us? We don't see it. We don't grasp it. We don't comprehend. And if we don't grasp that love, we will never be a changed people. We will never become what God wants us to be. We will never be moved toward holiness and righteousness because we are sitting back questioning how he could possibly love us. We must see that God's love for us has been constant so that you will look to him and be changed. And number three, friends, we can never lose our awe of God's election and God's adoption. Again, I find it fascinating that God's answer to Israel as they question, how have you loved us, is to take them back to their adoption process and and say, I I picked you back there. That's how you know. That's how important it is to never lose our awe and amazement that we have been chosen by God. That God always starts by proclaiming his faithful love. I love you. I've chosen you. I want to have a people. I have made the whole universe so that I could have a people. I mean, it's amazing to to think about. We haven't figured out the end of this universe. And God is saying, you know, I made it all for you so that you would be my people. It, It all exists so that you would see, look up and find me and come to me and be my people. Here's how the Apostle John tried to state it very in a really simple way. I want you to see the kind of love the Father has given to us. Okay, well, what, what do you want me to see, John? Here's what I want you to see. That you've been called children of God. That's what you need to see. That you are called the children of God. And then notice that he wasn't done there with that because that was good enough. And then he goes, and that's what we are. (laughs) And that is what we are. We're children of God. God is saying, I have always loved you. And how could we ever question it when we are able to one point back to the cross and see the immeasurable depth of God's love. Who would ever, who would ever decide before all of creation to make billions and billions and billions of people, all of which will never do what God said. I think I would have just looked down the funnel of time and said, this is a bad idea. Not a one of them is going to obey me. Not a one. Maybe we should just be content here in heaven. They're not going to do what we want. 
God says, no, I want a people. And even though they won't do right, I'm going to adopt them. And they're going to be mine. And I'm going to choose them through the blood of my son. And they will be my people. The ones who understand and seek my love and come to me, they're going to belong to me. And that's how they'll know that they are my people. And we are the children of God. Malachi's first answer to having a great faith is you have to grasp the love of God. And until you see that depth of love, you will always question him. You'll always question your life. And you'll never see what God is doing for you. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is amazing, just amazing, that you would have such a deep love, that you would create a people, all of which you would turn away from you. And you'd provide a solution to that so that we could be your people. And Lord, we praise you and glorify you because you gave your son. And that is through the cross that we can know who we are. That is through the cross that we can be your children. That's through the cross that we can belong to you and know that we are loved by you. Lord, thank you for deciding that you wanted to have people to be with you for all eternity. And Lord, thank you for making it possible for us to be your people because of your wonderful son. Lord, help us to see the depth and the height and the width of this amazing love. And Lord, I pray that every time we question how have you loved us, that we will point ourselves not only back to the cross and see the amazing love, But we will also look forward to the future, to all that you have promised to those who belong to you, that there be a day of vindication, a day of reward, and a day of recompense. And Lord, we long for the day to be with you. Lord, thank you for these promises, and thank you for this high display of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.